Should Makai Becton play left tackle or right tackle? Believe it or not, the answer to that question depends a lot on the players around him. I'll explain why today on Locked On Jets. You are Locked On Jets, your daily New York Jets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, this is the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. It's Wednesday, June 14th, 2023, and I'm your host, John B. from GangGreenNation.com. Thanking you so much for making the show your first listen or first watch every day. Subscribe to the show for free on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts so that you'll get new episodes as soon as they're posted. If you're listening on a podcast source, please give the show a five-star review. And if you're watching on YouTube, give this episode a big thumbs up. These things help us out and help other Jets fans find the podcast. Today we have our weekly mailbag show. Each Wednesday we try and do a mailbag. Our latest off-season mailbag begins with a question about the Jets' offensive line. It goes, I get that Dwayne Brown has only ever played left tackle, but what if it is actually more likely that Becton gets injured playing right tackle? If that's the case, would it not make more sense to try Mitchell at right tackle and Becton at left tackle? I hate to think that we are putting potentially our best asset in a position where they are more likely to get injured because our 30-plus-year-old tackle does not know how to switch sides. It seems like poor game planning, and I have to think it would deter future free agents if they don't think we have the player's best interest and health in mind. So that's an interesting question, and it goes back to some comments Mekhi Becton made a few weeks ago. He was upset with the Jets last year. And he said that, essentially, that he was blaming the coaching staff, at least to a certain extent, that he got injured because he felt like it was more likely to get injured playing on the right side of the offensive line than the left side of the offensive line. And that's because of the injury he was coming off of, the the footwork, the motions. It, it would require playing on the right side versus the left side, the stress he'd put on his injured knee. I, I don't know how true that is. I'm not a doctor, and when I read that, my thought, my first thought was, wow, Becton seems pretty upset with the Jets, which is a big, big news story. But my second thought was, you know, you're playing tackle. It's dangerous anywhere you are. I mean, would it be more dangerous for Becton to play right tackle than left tackle? I don't know that anybody can really say that with authority. If they can, then, you know, that's one thing. But I can't really see how you can make that judgment. I think the question on the offensive line is more, what's the best unit? Now, Robert Sala has been using this phrase that the best five players are going to be on the offensive line this year. I don't think that he actually means that. I don't, I kind of hope he doesn't actually mean that. And now, I'm not saying the Jets, the Jets should play untalented players on their offensive line, but offensive line is about more than talent. It's about how the, how the five players work together. It's about who is in a spot that fits their skill set. There's a different skill set for playing tackle versus guard versus center. And it also matters how much chemistry you have with the guy next to you. So it's not just about talent. You can take the five most talented linemen in the world, and if they don't have any chemistry, they're not going to play very well. In fact, this Salah comment about we're playing the best five guys, the last time I heard a Jets coach say that, it was 2014, and it was Rex Ryan telling us that about his defense. We were going to play the best 11 guys, and that led the Jets to playing Antonio Allen, that corner. Antonio Allen was a safety who really could not cover very well. He was kind of a run-stopping safety, and the Jets played him at corner in part because Rex Ryan kept using the phrase, we're going to play the best 11 guys. 
it's not about playing the best 11 guys on defense or the best five offensive linemen. It's about playing the right combination of players. So while I'm not sure that Beckton necessarily is more likely to get hurt on the right side than the left side, it's worth discussing. Are the Jets better as an offensive line with Beckton at left tackle? And the suggestion was that they play Max Mitchell at right tackle instead, Beckton at left tackle. The question is, can Mitchell play? Now, I think one of the things that we have a tendency to do as fans is we say, well, we don't really know how good this guy is. You have to test him out. You have to throw him out there in games to see what you have. The thing is, the coaching staff gets an opportunity to see these guys up close every single day. And that's true in the offseason. It's true once you get to training camp. It's true once you get into the season. So while we don't get to see these guys every day, the coaching staff does. Mitchell, to me, is a wild card. He played a lot last year before he got injured. He, I don't want to say he played poorly because I don't think that's fair to him. He was never supposed to play last year. You could just see that most of the time he was kind of physically overmatched. Last year, I think, was a year where he was supposed to hit the weight room and you know develop more strength, and it showed. I mean, he did his best. I think there's a real possibility he's better because he got experience last year that it will help him in the long run, but he was just not, not physically ready to play last year. So a lot of this comes down to Mitchell. Now, if Mitchell can play right tackle effectively... Then I think you have a case that Becton could play on the left side. I think, though, what the Jets are believe at the moment is that their best five offensive line man look is Dwayne Brown at left tackle and Becton at right tackle. You have to remember Becton played has played both the left and the right right sides. Uh, he's done it in the pros. He also did it in college. In fact, in college at Louisville, there were times he played left tackle on one play, then moved to right tackle for the next play. So he has experience playing on both sides of the line. And I think that as much as anything, you know, Becton can tell you it's about injuries. Becton can tell you about any number of things. I'll go back to what I said the day Becton made his comments about wanting to play the left tackle. The reason I think he wants to play left tackle above anything else, left tackles tend to get paid more than right tackles doing this league. But I think that there's a pretty strong case to be made that the best five-man offensive line for the Jets, the most effective five-man offensive line, has Dwayne Brown at left tackle and Becton at right tackle. Now, look, I'm not the biggest... Dwayne Brown fan at this point of his career. A few years back, I loved Dwayne Brown. I think Dwayne Brown did his best last year. I think for what was really an emergency signing, because the Jets signed Dwayne Brown after Becton got injured and they needed to find a tackle quickly. For an emergency signing at 37 years of age, I actually think Dwayne Brown acquitted himself pretty well. I was pretty adamant, though, heading into the offseason that he was a guy the Jets should not trust heading into 2023. But now that he's here, now that you look at what else is on the offensive line, Mitchell's a wild card. If Mitchell can step into a starting role, then I think maybe you consider moving Becton over. The other option would be Billy Turner, the guy they just signed from Green, or for De- I'm sorry, Turner's from Denver. He has experience playing with the Packers in the past. He's blocked for Aaron Rodgers at right tackle. If you move Becton to left tackle and Billy Turner to right tackle, I guess you could make an argument there. My sense is still that Brown's the better player. And listen, I'm not a big advocate of Dwayne Brown starting at left tackle for this team at 38 years of age. It's just a sign of where the Jets are at tackle. You know, you, every, I think every team enters the season with some question marks, and one of the Jets' biggest question marks happens to be at the tackle position because you're depending on a 38-year-old left tackle and a right tackle in Becton who you're kind of hoping can put it together. And I still do have some, you know, I, I don't know that Becton is a guy I view as a lock right now. I still do have some hopes that Becton could be a good player because if you go back to his rookie season in 2020, I think that there was more good than there was bad. And I think looking at this roster, I don't love that the Jets are in the spot that they're in at tackle, but 
realistically, there's a very strong case that Brown's your best left tackle and Becton's your best right tackle. If Mitchell is the wild card, and I'm a bit skeptical. If somebody has some data that can prove that Becton's more likely to be injured on the right side, then I'll, I'll listen to it if you have a medical background and you, there's something you can contribute to that, I'll, I'll listen to it. But I don't know that it's necessarily true that Becton's more likely to get injured on the right side. And I don't know it's going to impact the Jets' ability to sign free agents. I, I feel like there are certain things in the league that you have to watch out for that maybe you get a bad reputation for. I'm not sure the Jets playing at Becton at right tackle, though, is really going to contribute to that. Now, had you on the Locked On Jets podcast, we will continue our weekly mailbag show. We'll talk about a player who just had an injury revealed yesterday. He was a player I talked about quite a bit on the Tuesday episode of Locked On Jets. That's Chuck Clark. Unfortunately, he's injured. What are the cap implications of this injury? We'll get into them ahead here on this Wednesday mailbag edition of Locked On Jets. Today's episode of Locked On Jets is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook. Well, the NBA and NHL seasons have come to an end early this week. And it's been a rough week for Miami. The Denver Nuggets defeated the Miami Heat in five games in the NBA Finals. The Vegas Golden Knights did the same to the Florida Panthers, who are based in Miami, to win the Stanley Cup. First NBA championship in Denver Nuggets history, the Golden Knights win their first Stanley Cup ever. An amazing story. Only six years in the NHL. They went to the finals their first year. They've been in the conference finals or league semifinals four times in six years, and they are now the champions. However, baseball's kicking into gear, and we've got the NFL coming up in a few months. So you should make your way over to FanDuel, because right now new customers can get a no-sweat first bet of up to $2,500. Yes, that's $2,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet does not win. There's no better place to get in all, all the baseball and then once we get to the fall football action, then FanDuel Sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn and get a no-sweat first bet of up to $2,500. Again, that's FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. Thank you so much for making Lockdown Jets your first listen or first watch every day. We continue with our weekly mailbag. Our next question is about Chuck Clark. If Chuck Clark is actually out for the season, how does this impact the Jets' salary cap? Are they still on the hook for his whole salary against the cap this year? I never really understood how injuries are dealt with in this regard. And let me tell you something. There are very few podcasts I've ever done that have had as short of a shelf life as the Tuesday podcast. Because almost right after I uploaded it, and I talked a lot about what the signing of Adrian Amos made meant for the Jets. I, one of the things I talked about, I said I thought it was a good signing. I still think it's a good signing. So that, that that part of it aged pretty well. In fact, if anything, it's a better signing because news broke on Tuesday night that Chuck Clark apparently has suffered a pretty serious injury. He's going to miss a significant amount of time, You know, hopefully not out for the year, but very possible. So Adrian Amos goes from a signing that helps the depth at safety to a signing that was pretty essential because Clark was supposed to be in the mix for the Jets this year, and he's now going to miss a substantial amount of time. Now, everything else I was talking about is the Jets were going to throw three safety looks out there with Clark and Amos and Jordan Whitehead. And I was talking about the implications about how this maybe this means that Jamie Sherwood loses playing time. Well, that's all out the window now that Chuck Clark is injured. So, you know, like I said, I mean, I've had some bad predictions in the past. I've had some bad analysis. I'm not sure there's anything that's been so objectively proven incorrect so quickly as the as many of the segments on the Tuesday podcast. So if you want to get some entertainment, if you're become an everydayer and listen to this podcast on a consistent basis, check that one out. You'll Maybe you'll get a laugh or maybe you'll think about what could have been at the safety position for the Jets. Now, on to the question. 
what happens if Chuck Clark is on IR? And it, the answer is actually very simple to this. The team has charged the full amount of the player's contract against the salary cap. There is no decrease in cap hit because the player is on injured reserve. There's nothing that happens. It's just the player, you essentially play the, pay the player to be injured and rehab. So Chuck Clark, if you go to overthecap.com, has a cap hit of $4.1 million this year. That's a cap hit the Jets are responsible for. And, you know, if you ever follow the league, you know, there's always one team that just suffers a ton of injuries through the season. And sometimes you'll hear, like, on one of the one of the sports talk shows, you'll hear this team has this much money and cap space on injured reserve. You never want to be that team. But there's no good thing that comes from it. I mean, I guess you could argue that maybe the team should get a deduction, but it just doesn't happen for the time being. And, you know, here's the thing. Everybody plays under the same rules. It's not like, you know, it's not like the Buffalo gets a cap break when their players get injured. Everybody plays by the same rules, so that's how it is. If you want to argue it should be different, you can feel free, but that's, you know, the way the NFL works is you do not get a discount if a player is injured. Our next question, how do you think GM Tannenbaum and Coach Mangini would do with this, this Jets team today? That's an interesting question. So what would Mike Tannenbaum and Eric Mangini do with this Jets roster? Well, I think with Tannenbaum, you would have seen a lot more splashy moves. This Jets offseason has been kind of interesting because it kind of if, if, if you've been paying attention, this, this offseason has kind of run on two parallel tracks. There's kind of been like the Aaron Rodgers offseason where they get Rodgers and they hire Nathaniel Hackett and they bring in all these guys from Green Bay. And then like parallel to it, there's been like this Joe Doug, typical Joe Douglas offseason where they're bringing in guys like Chuck Clark and Mecole Hardman and guys who are kind of like under the radar players who don't cost a lot of money. So it's been the, it's been kind of fascinating. And you know, Douglas is in the draft, draft picking guys with you know big time tools, guys who you know dominate the athletic testing. So it's like kind of been like this two track offseason. I think with Tannenbaum, you probably would have seen much more of the offseason I was I was expecting where the Jets would be bringing you know they'd kind of be like Tampa Bay was the last couple of years. They'd be bringing in these big names at the end of their careers, guys who are you know in the stage where they're not what they used to be, but they're still effective. So I think the Jets would have a much more star-studded roster if Tannenbaum was here. Um, with Mangini, you know I, I'm not a big Mangini guy. I know there are people out there who regret firing man my father's one of those people my father always says that the biggest mistake they made was firing Mangini I don't know that that's necessarily true though I mean I remember that 2008 season and while a lot of the blame gets put on Brett Favre getting injured the truth was I remember those games Mangini made a lot of mistakes the defense was nowhere near as good as it should have been they had Darrell Revis they had David Harris they had good players on the line they had Chris Jenkins they had Sean Ellis that was a Kerry Rhodes in the secondary with Revis that team should have, the team was bad defensively, and there was no excuse because there was plenty of talent on that unit. And, you know, there, there were issues with, with his, the way he related to players. And here, here's my bigger point with Mangini. You know, people always point to the drafts that they had. They said, well, they drafted DeBrickishaw Ferguson and Nick Mangold and David Harris and Darrell Rivas while Mangini was here, and then Rex came in and they drafted poorly. Well, that's true to an extent, but I don't know that the two are necessarily related because... Mangini happened to be the coach when they drafted Vernon Golston first in the first round of 2008. So I've never been a big Mangini guy. Tannenbaum is what Tannenbaum, you know, Tannenbaum was always the ultimate quick fix guy, guy who did the move that helps you today, but may hurt you in the long run. So, you know, I think the team would be in position to make a run this year. I mean, I think the team that should be pretty good this year. I think that they would be, you know, they'd go, they'd go to even more of an extreme this offseason where they, you know, the Jets, to the extent the Jets are all in, they're, they're pretty all in this year. They'd be even more all in with Tannenbaum and maybe their, their short-term odds would be better. 
Mangini, I think, would be an issue. I, I don't think he'd be a plus. I don't think Mangini hired good coaches. So maybe these things cancel each other out and they'd be about the place that they are right now. The other point I'll make about Mangini, though, is he never went anywhere and did better. And that's the thing is, you know, there's a school of thought that the Jets made a mistake in 1995 when they fired Pete Carroll, who went on to be a great coach at USC and then the Seahawks. My own take on that is a little bit different. When the Jets fired Pete Carroll, he it was like nine, ten years before he was good at USC. It took a while, and he had he failed again in his second NFL job with the New England Patriots. But I can at least understand that. It's not like Mangini went anywhere else and was better. He went to Cleveland and really did not improve the Browns. Had a short stint with uh, the 49ers as their as on their assistant coaching staff and was not very good there. So I was never a big Mangini guy. I think I think the biggest difference in the team is that the team would just be more star-studded. I don't know that they'd necessarily be better coached, and maybe you know maybe at the end of the day, all that evens out. Next question: Why are the Jets not going after DeAndre Hopkins? There are a couple of possible explanations for that. I think the most simple one is there is a school of thought that DeAndre Hopkins is on the downside of his career, and it's not crazy. You know, he's on the wrong side of thirty. He's going to cost a lot of money. So I think maybe that's the most likely scenario. There is, and it seems like there are a lot of teams in the league that think DeAndre Hopkins is on the way down. I'm not sure how much I believe that. I still think he was pretty productive last year with the Arizona Cardinals. Um, so I think that, but I think there is some hesitancy. Now, the Jets were also the same team that was interested in Odell Beckham Jr. And had the Ravens not given Odell Beckham Jr. a crazy contract, he may be a Jet. And I think Beckham has a lot more question marks than Hopkins does but my guess is that's the reason I think the Jets just don't view him as a guy who can still contribute and maybe that will change you know these things can move quickly you know sometimes the team's like kind of out there and they don't think they're in on a player and then suddenly they sweat they swoop in and get grab him so I don't think you can rule that out at this point but I think that would be my guess I'm not sure the exact reason but that's that's where I would put my money at the moment now, had you on the Lockdown Jets podcast, we will close out our weekly mailbag. We're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic. Zach Wilson, is there a chance he can make a comeback after Aaron Rodgers retires? We'll get into it ahead on this Wednesday edition of the Lockdown Jets podcast. This is the Lockdown Jets podcast here on this Wednesday. We're doing our weekly mailbag show. Our next question, what are the odds Zach Wilson will be ready to take over when Aaron Rodgers retires? Well, if we're going to be honest, not good. I mean, if you look at Zach Wilson's comparables through his first two seasons, it's it's an ugly list. Players who put up comparable stats to Zach Wilson. I mean, we're talking the Joey Harringtons, the Kyle Bowlers of the world. And if you're looking at, like, situations that resemble this, Bowler is actually kind of applicable to this. Because I'm trying, I'm trying to think of, like, quarterbacks who were drafted early and got immediate playing time and were sent to the bench. It rarely turns out that that guy develops when he's sitting on the bench. I mean, with Bowler, Steve McNair came to the Ravens. It's not like Kyle Bowler then took over and after McNair, McNair got injured, I think the second year, it's not like Bowler came out and became the franchise quarterback for Baltimore. Um, another example is Arizona with Matt Leinert. Kurt Warner went to Arizona. Now, everybody says Kurt Warner was a Hall of Fame player, but at that point of his career, if we want to put this into context, the perception was that Warner was over the hill. He was with the Giants. You know, he was kind of like the placeholder for Eli Manning, and they benched him pretty quickly. Warner's The end of Warner's Rams career, people forget, was pretty bad. He looked like, Warner looked like he was over the hill. And then he kind of like found rejuvenation. He had like a late career renaissance in Arizona. The Cardinals had drafted Matt Liner. He was not very good. So, the Card- so they put Warner in the lineup. Warner retired after the 2009 season, and Liner was supposed to get the starting job, and he didn't even win the starting job out of training camp. 
if you want to go back, and this is going back 30 years, there's a Jets comparable with Boomer Esiason. That was, Boomer Esiason replaced Browning Nagel, who was a guy, if you're actually looking for the best Jets comparison, a guy who had a rocket arm and just could not play at all. Um, and Browning Nagel never had a future with the Jets. So while there's this, there's this perception Aaron Rodgers is going to come in and teach Zach Wilson everything he knows, the odds are against it. Now, here's what I will say. If you're looking for the glasses half full take, if Zach Wilson was ever going to figure it out, and we've seen across the league, I mean, Geno Smith is an example of this, there are the occasional players who do figure it out after a few years on the bench. So if Zach Wilson was going to turn it around, this is the situation he needs to be in, where he just has a chance to reset. The Jets used the word reset late last season, and then they kind of pushed it back to the lineup. It proved to be you know a move that did not benefit Zach Wilson at all. Zach Wilson probably should have sat the rest of this last season. Unfortunately, Mike White's injury came into play, and Joe Flacco showing nothing came into play. So the Jets kind of felt pressed to put Wilson back in the lineup for those two games against Detroit and Jacksonville. He just needs to really work on his fundamentals. He needs to spend these this next year or two drilling the fundamentals into him, you know, really learning how to read coverages. It's not easy. You know, most quarterbacks can't figure it out. The way I view Zach Wilson is if you could do that draft over, and this is total hindsight, there are good. It's not like the Jets were the only team that was going to draft Zach Wilson high in 2021. Now, yes, you do have to blame Joe Douglas to an extent. I'm not saying you let the Jets completely off the hook for their miss because it was a miss. And ultimately, you're judged on how good the guys you draft turn out. But the Jets were not the only team that would have made that mistake. There were good reasons to draft Zach Wilson in 2021, just like there were warning signs that teams probably should have taken more seriously. But let's put away the fact Zach Wilson was the second overall pick. He should not have been the second overall pick. Knowing what we knew then, you could have made the case. In fact, I made the case. Knowing what we know now, if you could do that draft over, knowing everything that was to come, total hindsight, you wouldn't draft him. Probably would be like a third, maybe fourth round pick. So that's the context I view Zach Wilson in. And you would not expect a third or fourth round pick to be ready year two, probably year three. It's more of a longer term project. So that's where Zach Wilson is right now. Most projects don't work out, but occasionally there's the guy where it all just clicks for him on the practice field. You're kind of hoping that's the scenario. Is that plan A for the Jets? No, of course not. There's no way the Jets are depending on Zach Wilson to take over. And there are some people in the media speculating that. It's ridiculous. Do the Jets, would the Jets be thrilled if Zach Wilson developed on the practice field and you saw, they saw him and say, hey, maybe this guy's improved enough that we can start thinking about it in the next year or two? Of course they'd be thrilled. I just don't think it's the plan A. I don't think it's necessarily the most realistic scenario in the world either. Our next question, what are the odds that Conklin or Uzama is traded before week one and Rucker and or Yeboah impresses, assuming Kuntz is developmental? I think this question was was put out there to get a reaction from me because you know how I feel about Conklin and Uzama. And you know, you know how happy I'd be if they weren't here anymore. So I think you were trying to get a reaction out of me. Unfortunately, the Jets feel very differently about Conklin and Uzama than I do. They seem to think that they're good at tight ends. Why, I could not tell you. Now, my hope for tight end is Ruckert because I do think Ruckert can develop and I'm hoping that this year off you know, this red shirt year where he's, now he's had the chance to work in the offseason. Maybe he's turned into something. I do think it's possible Ruckert could win the starting job this year. I think one of the things that helps Ruckert is that when you have a new offensive coordinator, everybody gets a fresh start. So the fact that Conklin and Uzama were starters last year, that doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean that they're going to be starters this year. But Nathaniel Hackett likes to use a lot of two tight end sets, so I think he'll want to have at least three guys on the team they can put in there. 
I don't think the Jets are as down on Conklin and Usama as you or I are. And I say this somewhat jokingly, but not completely. You got to have somebody who wants to trade for them. Would you trade for Conklin or Uzama? I mean, maybe if Minnesota really wants Conklin back or Cincinnati really wants Uzama back, they give up a late round pick. But who's going to trade for these guys? And that's not so much a knock on either. I mean, it's a knock on them, but it's not so much a knock on them as just as it is being realistic that there aren't a lot of players in the NFL who have trade value. And I think that there's, these are higher, higher level guys who get traded. It's not the Conklins and Uzamas of the world. Last question. After all this time working in Jets media, do you have sources that provide insider information? I don't think I can recall any time in the past few years where you have revealed any kind of insider information on the podcast. In fact, you often mention a disclaimer that you don't have insider information. Yeah, well, a couple of things about that. I mean, one of the reasons I, I add that disclaimer is that there are people out there, there are like websites out there that just kind of like quote people who are in the media, even somebody like as low, and I'm not like a high level media guy, but there are like websites out there that just quote people to generate content. So I want to like make that clear in case somebody out there is like one of those writers is listening to me and then says, oh, well, John is giving this insider information. I want to make it clear that I'm not like providing insider information in those instances. Um, when you do this as long as I have, inevitably you're going to come across some information. I mean, it's just part of the nature of this work where inevitably you'll come across some insider information from time to time. So a couple things about this. Uh, first of all, it is not my goal to become the ultimate Jets insider. I'm not, I don't really dream of breaking stories. So I'm not out there actively trying to cultivate sources. In fact, on some level, I kind of try and stay away from it because I worry a little bit if you get too close to the team, you lose your objectivity a bit and you become hesitant to criticize people when they deserve it. Because, you know, if you get close enough, you become their friends and, you know, it becomes more difficult to be objective. So in a way, I kind of try and stay away from it. Um, it's also kind of like a decision of mine that I've made consciously. I, I don't really think you get a lot from breaking news. I mean, if you get it right, nobody really remembers it. And there are instances where you get it wrong and everybody gets on you. And I think there are plenty of people out there who can break stories. I mean, I don't think you need me to break stories for you. Um, so that that's another aspect of this. If I tried to do it, maybe I'd be good. Maybe I would not be good. I mean, I have no idea whether I'd be good or not if I wanted to break stories. But it's just not, at the end of the day, it's just not something that interests me. Now, yeah, like I said, I mean, there are inevitably you meet people, inevitably you hear things that, you know, are not for public consumption. So when I get like insider information, I just try and use it to give you a more accurate analysis. So if like I find out a player's injured, maybe I go a little bit easier on him when I'm breaking down a play. Or if I find out that like, you know, if I'm blaming like the safety because he blew a play and then I find out that like that the he was actually trying to cover for somebody and like, it was actually the corner to blame. Then I try and work that into my analysis. So that's kind of like the way I try and use insider information when I get it. Because I think ultimately, and this is another thing I'll bring up, I think the way the media works right now, especially in the NFL, is so dumb. You know, it's like you'll hear these stupid rumors that like don't make, that don't add anything to your experience. I'll give you one example. If there was a few years back, I got this message from an agent. He says, you can attribute this to a source. Jets are interested in this draft prospect. Now, if I tell you that, what's that really providing you? The Jets are probably interested in like 100 draft prospects. And, and me telling you that the, from a source that the Jets are interested in this guy, that's giving you nothing. It's giving me nothing. So, it, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there might be someday. There are probably like maybe over the last few years, there's maybe like one or two like 
minor stories I could have broken. It's not like I'm breaking the Aaron Rodgers trade. Like there may be like one or two stories I could have broken, but I just don't see the value in it. And it's again, it's not like I'm the ultimate insider. There's some information that I get, but I I try and share I try and share it with you in a smarter way than that. I just try and give you more accurate analysis because at the end of the day, my biggest goal is not to tell you what's happening. I think there are plenty of people who can break the news. I try and at least give you a even if I'm not right, even if you don't agree with me, I hope you at least come away thinking I'm giving you some thoughtful analysis. And I try and use the inform- the extent I get information, I try and use it to give you more thoughtful analysis. And hopefully I'm successful in that venture. Anyway, that's all for today's episode. This has been the Lockdown Jets podcast, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network. Your team every day is our motto. As always, if you enjoy the show, hit the subscribe button where you're watching or listening so that you'll never miss an episode. If you're listening on a podcast source, give the show a five-star review. And if you're watching on YouTube, give this episode a big thumbs up. These things help us out, help other Jets fans find us. Have a great Wednesday, everybody. We'll be back next time to talk more Jets.